morning to Revelation chapter 3. We come to the fifth of the seven churches today, the church at Sardis. You know, space is kind of an interesting thing. It's kind of hard for most people to wrap their minds around. When you start thinking about the distances between planets and the distances from here to the sun or the distance from here to one of the stars, it's really mind-boggling. It's almost incomprehensible. In fact, scientists or astronomers had to come up with some new terms as they began studying these things and measuring distance. They come up with a term called light year. And basically where that comes from, we know that light travels at a speed of 186,000 miles per second. And so uh, when you start thinking about some of the stars and you start thinking about their distance away, one light year is 6 trillion miles. 6 trillion miles. Wrap your mind around that. If a star... 30 light years away from the earth exploded and died. Five years ago, we would not be able to tell it for another 25 years. Hard to believe, but it's nevertheless true. That's how far away these little flickers of light are in the night sky. These are massive um, bodies, in most cases larger or far larger than the earth. Way out there in space somewhere that are trillions of miles away. But the interesting thing here is, and this is what's really mind-boggling, is that a star could cease to exist, it could explode and cease to exist, and we're still seeing light coming at us for something that may have been out of existence for years. The light at the church at Sardis was still shining, but the church was dead. Scripture teaches us that sinful mankind, apart from Christ, is dead in trespasses and in sins. This according to Ephesians chapter 2. The same passage also teaches us that God is the one who made alive all those who are spiritually living. If you're spiritually alive today, it's because God, according to Ephesians chapter 2, has made you alive. But God does not judge things the way that man looks at things, and He doesn't judge things on the outside. When we think about things that appear to be alive, but really aren't alive, and there are some of those things in this world. But when we think about that, we think about God's words in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7, which says, For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I'm glad that God doesn't judge the same way that other people judge. So often mankind is wrong in its judgments. So often we're judged by the wrong standard. We're judged by the wrong set of facts. But God doesn't worry about all of the external things. He looks straight into the heart of a person. And by the way, God looks straight into the heart of a church. God's not looking at, you know, we care so much these days about budgets and we care about numbers and are we growing, are we declining, are we 
Are we staying the same? Are, are we building buildings? Are we doing all these great measurable things that man can look at and say, wow, that church is really doing something. But God is saying to that church and to all churches, I'm looking at your heart. I'm looking at your heart. And what do you think I'm seeing there? Now maybe, maybe all of the great external things are there and the heart is pure as well. But so often, the heart is not pure. And the heart of the church at Sardis was not pure. It looked right from the outside to an onlooking world. But to God, it looked wrong. When the Lord looked at the heart of this church, He saw a church that was comfortable, content, cold, and coasting along. It was a church that had a reputation, but no reality to back up that reputation. Let me give you an example of this. In America today, depending on what poll you look at, approximately 80% of people claim that they're Christians. Claim to have a relationship with Christ. And I would say, and you would say, well, where is the evidence of that? Where is the evidence that 80% of people are really born-again believers walking with Christ? Now, that's a great thought. I would like to see a country where that was true. That would change everything, wouldn't it? You wouldn't have to lock your car doors anymore, your, your uh, house when you went to bed at night. You could leave uh, money lying around and people wouldn't pick it up and steal it, right? In that kind of a world where people were sold out, born again believers in Jesus Christ, their whole life changed. Well, we know that not everyone who claims to be a Christian really is a Christian. That's obvious. But Jesus, the great physician here had taken the pulse of the church at Sardis and he had declared it to be dead. Those, many of them who were claiming to be walking with Christ, weren't. They were still yet, as Ephesians 2 says, dead in trespasses and in sin. I invite you to take your Bibles now and let's stand together as we read from God's Word from Revelation chapter 3, beginning in the first verse. And to the angel of the church at Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are, already, that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God, Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, 
But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us pray. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to be here today. And thank you for the opportunity to study one by one these seven churches. And Lord, as we come today to the church at Sardis, the fifth of the seven churches, we pray that it would speak loudly to each one of our hearts and speak to this body as a whole. We pray, Lord, that you would change us from the inside out. Change our hearts, we ask. Be with us now. Guide our hearts into understanding. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you're seated. Well, notice, first of all, there's a description of Christ to the congregation following the pattern that, it, that has been uh, taken with all of the churches. There's, first of all, a reference back to the vision of the Son of Man in chapter 1. We see that here. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So in the first part of verse 1, there is a description of Christ to the church at Sardis. The city of Sardis was located 30 miles southeast of Thyatira, which we looked at last time. It had been a capital city, the capital city, in fact, of Lydia. An emperor worship cult was located there that was very active. The worship of Artemis, the goddess of fertility, was also quite active. Sardis was a wealthy city as gold was refined from the nearby Pactolus River. Its location made it almost impervious to being conquered from any outside force. So probably the wealth and strength of the city led to a sense of complacency and ultimately downfall. When we get to a point where we're complacent, we're in danger of really a fall. We think, well, nothing uh, is really bad going to happen to us? We're just kind of floating along here and everything seems okay. Well, we're very vulnerable when we get to a place where we're no longer on guard and we're no longer uh, working toward a goal. Well, the church was probably founded as an outreach of Paul's ministry in Acts 19 and verse 10. Christ is described to this church as he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Well, the seven spirits may be referenced to the Holy Spirit, seven always being a number of completion in the Scriptures. Uh, and, and certainly here, there are seven churches, there are seven spirits. This would perhaps be a way, another way of saying the Holy Spirit in its totality, the Holy Spirit in His completeness. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, we talked about this more when we looked at the vision of the Son of Man in chapter 1, that there's a couple of strong possibilities here for what this reference to the angel of the church. Because each one of the seven letters starts out the same way, to the angel of the church of Sardis, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, and on down the line. The seven uh, angels, though, of the churches is either the pastors of those churches, the leaders, the bishop, the uh, elder of the church, or it could possibly be the prevailing spirit of the church. Now, we looked at some pros and cons for those things. One is, is that uh, probably the, the greatest number of scholars looking at this down through history and through time 
have said that it's probably uh, the pastors of those churches. The only downside of interpreting that way we said at the time was that there's no other place in Scripture where a pastor is called an angel. However, when you look at the word angel, uh, it means messenger. And so, in a sense, what is a pastor to a church but a messenger, delivering God's Word, bringing God's Word to that congregation or to that church, that body. The introduction was to serve as a reminder to the church at Sardis of what they were lacking as they were devoid of the Spirit. And you think, well, uh, a church can't have everything. Well, that's true. church can't have everything. But if the church doesn't have the Spirit of God, then I would ask, is it even really a church at all? I mean, there's some, there's some uh, pretty key elements that we've got to have if we're going to be a church. And if we don't have the Spirit of God, then we certainly don't meet uh, the definition or the requirements for being a New Testament church. Now, we don't necessarily have to have a building. We don't necessarily have to have uh, hymnals or a video projector or a sound system or drums, or a piano, or whatever. Those things aren't said in the New Testament to be required to be a church, even though just about any church you're going to find is going to have at least some or maybe all of those things. But a church that doesn't have the Spirit of God is not a New Testament church. Did you know that we could take this building, we could sell it, and we could, uh, a doctor's office could could come in here and they could start... uh, you know, setting up medical practice. They could see patients. And they say, well, you know, later we'll get around to taking down the steeple. And we know it looks like a church from the outside, but we just don't have the extra money right now. And, and here this building would be sitting on the corner looking just like it does now, but the church has sold the property and a different a business is meeting inside. And we say, is it a church anymore? Well, no, it's not a church. The church doesn't even meet there anymore. It just looks like a church from the outside. It's just a facade. It's just a building. In essence, that's what Christ is saying to the church at Sardis. You've got a sign. You've got a building. You've got whatever from the outside. As the world looks on, they say, well, there is the church at Sardis. But the church was dead. It was dead. If something's dead, that means it was once alive. We don't say to an inanimate object that it's dead. It's just an inanimate object. We only really label something as dead if it has once been alive. Every dead church that you'll find all over the world, today or at any point in history, was once alive. You can look at a lot of those churches and you think about the excitement that that church, uh, the, the people there had when that church was being planted and when it first was constituted as a church. Think about how happy it was. They may have had dinner on the grounds that day and said, we're now fully constituted as a church. But yet years go by, decades go by, and even centuries go by. And those churches, many of them, have slowly died. You go over to Europe and you see these grand cathedrals. 
in every major city and in smaller cities and even in the countryside. Beautiful, ornate buildings that if they were built today would cost millions and millions of dollars that are virtually setting empty. Virtually setting empty. When I was in Europe a few years ago, we went into one of these places in Brussels, Belgium. The seating capacity of this place must have been several hundred, maybe a thousand people. There was someone there that we asked, he said, what does the church typically run now for a worship service when it meets? They said about 40 people. About 40 people. Back during even the earlier part of the 20th century, even up through World War II, those churches were failed. Christianity was strong on the continent of Europe. But in recent decades, it's been dying. Dying back. God always preserves a remnant, there's no doubt about that. But still, the sad reality is, is that many churches are dying. And it's not just their attendance. There's usually an internal reality that leads to external truth or reality or results. Notice next, there's a compliment, not to the church like what we've seen in the pattern so far overall, but there's a compliment to a select few in this congregation. And we see that in verse 4. There's no good word that is given to the church as a whole. The church as a whole was far from where the Lord desired for it to be. Instead, he gives a few who are singled out here a word of encouragement. Even in the worst situations, and even in the most unfaithful churches, God preserves a remnant. A remnant usually isn't big. In fact, I've seen a lot of quilts. My grandmother used to make quilts out of remnants. Maybe some of you ladies have done that too. I know Robert likes to quilt. He was telling me recently. But you know, when we think about a remnant, we think of something really small. But it's real. I mean, I would say, what could you do with a little tiny piece of cloth? I mean, it's just a scrap. Why didn't somebody throw that away? We've got a whole closet full of these. My grandmother, you'd open a closet and and just stuff would fall out on you. Just pieces of scraps that she'd saved over the years. But she took that little rem, those little remnants and she could make beautiful quilts out of those things. God can do a lot with a remnant. That might be nice to have a big bolt of material. We could do something great with that too. But even with a little remnant, God can do something great. But the thing that God wants is He wants genuineness. God doesn't want fakes or frauds. Again, going back to the statement I read from 1 Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. And if God has that sincerity in the heart, God can do great things with individuals or with churches. 
A small remnant in Sardis had overcome sin and they had demonstrated a true righteousness. There were a few who had not had their garments soiled or stained with sin. The Lord Jesus promises these people that they will walk with Him in white. White representing purity. White representing uh, holiness, cleanness. Because they were worthy. Notice next, there's a rebuke of the sinful congregation as a whole. And we see that in the latter part of verse 1 and in the latter part of verse 2. A rebuke of the sinfulness within this congregation. Through outward appearance, this church may have fooled a lot of people into thinking it was alive. But they couldn't fool the Lord. That's the amazing thing. People will try so, so hard to fool one another. I mean, they work hard at fooling one another. You see it in every segment of society. But nobody's fooling God. But yet a lot of people are living like they're fooling God, aren't they? They act like God doesn't know what they're doing when they're alone. Or what goes on in their home. But they're very concerned about keeping up appearances with other people. God hears the kind of language that you use when you're by yourself. God knows what you watch on TV when nobody else is around. He even knows what you're thinking. Nobody can see into your head. But the Lord knows what you're thinking. Yeah, we're worried and we're scared that other people are going to find out what we're doing. But the one that we really should be worried about is the Lord. Through outward appearances, though, the church at Sardis was fooling people into thinking that it was alive, but they were not, and they could not fool the Lord. John MacArthur says, like so many churches today, it was defiled by the world. It was characterized by inward decay and populated by unredeemed people playing church. Playing church. That's like when you think about an actor or an actress on a, in a stage play or in a movie or in a television show. They're playing a role. They're not who they appear to be. That's where the word hypocrite comes from. Even in ancient times, in Bible times, people would play a role. They were an actor. They were someone wearing a mask, pretending to be something that they weren't. They were hypocrites. Only in time did that come to be a negative term. That would have been like calling someone an actor or an actress today. Spiritual death in the New Testament is always connected with its cause. And that cause is always sin. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 describes unsaved mankind as those who were dead in trespasses and in sins. And the church at Sardis was merely performing deeds. They were going through the motions. The deeds they did were apparently enough though to fool a lot of people. But not enough to fool God. In the Old Testament we have a really good example uh, that... that that illustrates for us this whole idea of the sincerity of the heart. 
Think about the Old Testament character, Samson. Remember, Samson had been given great strength by God. He was one of the judges of Israel. He took a wife from among the Philistines named Delilah. And she coaxed him and cajoled him into telling her the secret of his great strength. God had told him never to cut your hair. It's the secret. It's the source of your great strength. That one thing God had told him to never, never do or he would lose his strength. Finally, after she had badgered him so much, he finally told her. And she said, Samson, the Philistines are upon you after she had cut his hair while he slept. He come and thinking at times before, just like times before, he would break the bonds. But he couldn't do it this time. The Philistines carried him away. They put out his eyes. And one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible comes... From chapter 16 and verse 20 of Judges. Samson's disobedience had led him to this point. He said, I will go out as before at other times and I will shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. The saddest thing of all for any church or for any other, any believer for that matter is that the Lord has departed from them. They no longer have His Spirit and they no longer have His power guiding them. They're cold, they're complacent, and they're going nowhere. And many are in that boat today and don't even realize it. Sin will always take you down that kind of road. Compromise will take you down that road. And corruption is where it all ends up, just like at the church at Thyatira that we looked at last time. Although Samson was the same man with the same name, his power was gone. There are a lot of churches that have had the same name for decades, even centuries. But yet, their power is gone. Samson was still Samson. Even in his weakened state, even with his eyes gouged out, Even before he was placed between the pillars in the temple and before he prayed and asked God for uh, one last time to restore his strength so that he could push down those pillars and that the roof of this structure would collapse and kill these uh, Philistine enemies. Even in all of that, he was still Samson. He still had the same name. But the power was gone. How many churches? What about First Baptist Church of Rogers? Still has the same name that it's had for a long, long time. But does it still have the power that it once had? Does it have the power? And if not, why does it not have the power? What was going on in the past that's not going on now? What has really changed? And I know we live in a world that's increasingly hostile towards Christianity. And it's harder and harder to live for the Lord in this world. And the external pressures pressing in on every church are greater than they've been, certainly in our lifetimes. 
But where is the power in the church today? Although Sardis was the same church with the same name, its power was gone. Notice next, there's a correction to this congregation. And we see that in the first part of verse 2 and then in verse 3. First, the faithful remnant needed to wake up. There was no time for indifference. Sin and error needed to be confronted head on. And we talked about this last week as we looked at the church at Thyatira, how that they had become corrupted, but they were like that frog in the kettle. They were just kind of boiled a little bit at a time. It didn't leap upon them. It creeped upon them. And this is what had happened. The church had died slowly at Sardis. It didn't just die suddenly. It had slowly died as it had compromised and compromised and compromised. And then it had ultimately become corrupted. A lot of specific details are not given here what led to the death of the church. But generally speaking, we know what it was. It's the same kind of things that generally cause churches today to die. It's usually not one point in history that the church can look back today and say that this is when it all happened. It was right here on this Sunday. This is what happened. No, usually what happens is slowly over time, churches die. And they find themselves just like Sardis. Sin and error needed to be confronted head on, just like in every church. But they didn't. They had compromised. They had made peace with it. And in the spirit of all getting along, they had just kind of let it go. Secondly, this remnant needed to strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. Even what little was still alive, it was about to die. It's like a a plant that is all brown, but it's got two or three shoots coming out somewhere that are still alive. And so you kind of keep watering it and you, you baby it and you fertilize it and you try to keep it going. That's kind of where they were. Secondly, this remnant needed to strengthen the things which were just about to die. The Lord basically was encouraging the true Christians in in Sardis to, to step up and to fan the flames. Kind of like those dying embers that are just barely going and you kind of blow on them a little bit or you find something and you fan them to try to get that fire to go again. Third, the faithful remnant needed to remember what they had received and what they had heard. In other words, they needed to get back to the basics, back to the fundamentals when it came to the truth of God's Word. You can have the most elaborate offensive scheme that you, you, want, you want to have. You could have, the, have a scheme like what uh, the Dallas Cowboys had in, during the Landry years. Very complicated offense. You can have that. But if you can't block and you can't tackle and you can't run then you're not going to win many games. All you have is theory. All you have is words on a page and ideas floating around in the air. You've got to get back to the basics and back to the fundamentals. And that's what the Lord was calling the church at Sardis to do. Get back to the things that you know. Get back to prayer. Get back to worship. Get back to discipleship. Get back to ministry. Get back to those basic things. These were the teachings of the apostles. Paul's letters, which had been circulated among the churches, it was the gospel itself. The good news of Jesus Christ. It doesn't get more basic than that. 
than that for the church. The good news that Jesus Christ came to earth. Died shedding his blood for our sins. Rose again on the third day and ascended to heaven. And he offers salvation freely to all who will believe. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. Fourth, after going back to the truths of Scripture, they needed to keep them. It's great to have the truth, but if you don't keep the truth, it's not of any practical value to you. Fifth, they needed to repent. Each one of the churches God call, the Lord calls upon to repent of their waywardness. And He's calling upon all people today to repent. God wants people to repent, turn away from their sins, and turn back to Him. Live for Him. With sorrow and remorse, the believers at Sardis were to confess their sins away from them. 1 John 1, 9 says, But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's great. And that applies to me and to you as individuals. But guess what? There's certainly application for the church. If the church confesses its sins, He is faithful and just to forgive the church of all of its sins and to cleanse it from all unrighteousness. That is true. Because what is the church? It's people. The church is the body of Christ. And so what applies to individuals there applies to the church. The consequences for them, if repentance did not come, would be severe. He warns them that if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I'm coming. Jesus warned of this. And it's recorded in the Gospels that he would come like a thief in the night. And if, and if a person went to bed knowing that the Lord was going to come back that night, if a person knew that a thief was going to break into his house and try to steal his goods, then he would stay awake and he would guard things. But instead, not knowing, he lays down, gets comfortable, he goes to sleep. Jesus said, I'm going to come back like that, like a thief in the night, at an hour that you don't know that I'm coming. Watch therefore, he says, for you know not the hour that the Son of Man will return. We've got to be ready. That's what we're called upon. To be is to be ready. This idea of coming as a thief carries with it the idea of imminent judgment. For Sardis or for any other church or any other individual believer to escape the stricter judgment of God is to, repent, is to repent and to embrace God's truth. Notice finally, there's a promise to this congregation in verses 5 and 6. The white garments the Lord promises to clothe them with symbolizes the godly character of faithful service. There is always a reward for faithful service in God's economy. White represents purity. It represents holiness. And that's how we will be clothed if we're a part of that remnant that God has reserved. He further promises that He will not erase or He will not blot out His name from the book of life, but will confess Him before the Father and before the holy angels. Now, what does this mean? This is much more of a promise than a threat. A lot of people have looked at this and they've seen this kind of in a negative light. And they've, they've said, wow, you know, God can erase a person's name out of the book. 
You know, if, if they don't live up to a certain standard. Well, this is meant to be a lot more positive than it is uh, negative. In John's day, rulers kept a register of citizens of a city. It would have been true at Sardis. It would have been true of anywhere. And so uh, the immediate context of this is Sardis, certainly. And so he's saying here to the citizens of the church of Sardis, I will not blot your name out of the registry for this city. And so the church would have heard this and they would have understood kind of the symbolism. If someone died or they committed a serious crime, then their name was erased from the registry for the city. Christ here is saying and He is promising to never erase a true Christian's name from the roll of which their names were written as uh, Revelation 13 and verse 8 says where they were written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. But on the contrary, Christ will confess every believer's name before God the Father and His holy angels. Isn't that a good thing? Isn't it good that we don't have to plead our own case before God? Christ will plead our name for us. Christ is the one who will stand before the Father and say, He's one of mine. He's one of mine. I know Him. He's mine. That's good, because I wouldn't know what to say in that moment. I would be awestruck, and so would you. But in that moment, it's the Lord that will be pleading our case for us. Like the other letters, this letter ends... With the exhortation, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And again, that basically means if you can take it, if you can receive it, if you can comprehend it, here's what it is. If you've got the ability to hear what he's saying, this is it. What happened to Sardis? This kind of a negative uh, set of verses here. You think about the dead church. In fact, I hated that title. I hated giving that title uh, to Jennifer to put in the bulletin this week. I really did. Now, what kind of a title for a message is that? The dead church. Kind of a tough, tough thing to talk about the church at Sardis. But what happened to it? It was strongly argued by Melito, a prominent man who served as bishop at Sardis, a few decades after John wrote uh, these letters, that at least some revival did take place in this city at about the time that they would have received this letter. It's unclear to what degree it was, but at least to, in some measure, there was revival that took place after they received this letter. So that is good news. But the good news for any church who would hear that today is, as long as there's life, there's still opportunity for repentance. As long as the church is still there, it can turn, it can change, it can become uh, that church that has remembered then its first love. Until Christ returns, it's not too late for individuals either. They can turn their life over to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, we can keep on living our lives for ourselves and in this world. Uh, we'll find limited satisfaction in doing so. We can pursue all the things that the world has to offer. And the world offers a lot. You could spend every minute of every day doing something and enjoying and partaking in the world's goods. But you know what? They don't ultimately satisfy, do they? But there's something that the Lord offers that does satisfy. He offered it to the church at Sardis. He's offered it to all of these seven churches. And He's offering it to all people. And that is hope. Hope is a precious commodity. Those who have no hope are the saddest of all. They're in the saddest place of all. But those who have hope have something to cling to. And Christians, if they have anything at all, have hope. We have hope. Paul says if all this stuff we're doing uh, were not real and there was really no hope in it, we of all men as Christians would be the most pitiable. But Paul wrote to the Colossian church, he says, But hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that was given to us. I'm sorry, that wasn't out of Colossians. That's Romans 5, 5. But hope does not disappoint. Until Christ returns, there's hope for every one of us as individuals. And there's hope for this church and any other church who would turn back and say, I don't want to be dead. I want to be alive. I want to be vibrant. I want to be the kind of church that I know that we can be. I want Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ to be front and center in everything that we say, in everything that we do. We want it all to be about Him. Is that your prayer today? Are you confident this morning that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life? Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning and we give you praise, first of all, for giving us the opportunities that you do. We think, Lord, about the church at Sardis and it's easy for us to look down upon them and say, wow, how could there be a dead church like that? But yet, Father, as we look around our land today, we see lots and lots of churches that have compromised with the world and they've compromised some more. They've been corrupted. We see other churches that little by little they've they've grown lazy and they finally died. Lord, what a tragedy that a church that bears your name, Christian, tragedy also Lord for any person who bears your name the name of Christ would be dead spiritually Lord we pray this morning that you would touch hearts and you would bring us all to a place of repentance and a place of deeper concern to follow you 
If there's anyone here who doesn't know you as their personal Lord and Savior, someone who doesn't know if their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, I pray that today you might draw them by the convicting power of your Holy Spirit to begin a new life with you. Lord, it's as easy as asking you to come into our hearts and meaning it and genuinely saying, I don't want control over my life anymore. I want the Lord Jesus to take control. Lord, maybe there's a need this morning for church membership for some. Maybe some need to come and say, we know God has led us here and we want to be a part of this family, a part of this body. Maybe others would say, I need to just come and kneel at the altar and I know that I'm in the same danger of falling where, where Sardis had fallen to. If I'm not careful, I'll end up just like them. And if our church is not careful, it will end up just like them. Maybe some would come and just pray for First Baptist Church this morning. In light of what had happened at Sardis. And intercede and pray that that would not ever happen here. Whatever the needs are, Father, in this place today, we ask you to meet them. We pray all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen.